Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Who said that? Who the f said that? Is it Tommy F? Phone's for you. I think it's the devil. Who are these f***ing guys? Is it Tommy F? We'll go to the loony bin together. It's a lot of nonsense. A little nonsense now and then is relished by the wisest man. All right, welcome everybody to another episode of the Total BS Podcast. Justin Spears in the house, along with myself, Saul Bookman. Justin, how are you doing today, bud? I'm a lot better than this weekend because we're getting sports back, Saul. Oh, we're getting- sports, sports is just right around the corner, isn't it? Oh, I'm so happy. At least we think so. Then you see what the PGA Tour did today, and you're like, oh, man, I don't know about this. Yeah, so I'm optimistic about sports coming back. I feel like you know we're heading towards the right direction, but you know we'll talk all about that you know later on. Uh, during the week, but today's podcast is a must listen. We have a very special guest joining us right here yeah, on the Total of, BS podcast. One of the things we had talked about is that we were not going to shy away from social justice issues or things that might be a little difficult to talk about, right? Today yep. we have a special guest, but before we get to that, let's do the intro, Justin. Your fans just might turn into our fans. Be cool, it's just part of the program. Spit your best 16 if you must. You're not whack, you just sound whack rapping after us. Yo, your fans just might turn into our fans. Be cool, it's just a part of this program. Spit your best 16 if you must. You're not whack, you just sound whack rapping after us. Again, that's MC Squared with the sound that they provide us and uh, their new album dropped last week, Venus, if you get a chance to dro- uh, to download it on Spotify and iTunes. But we came here for a very specific reason, to provide everybody with a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of a, a, a little education, if you will, but also to get a little bit more insight into to certain things because I think at every single level, whether you've been to college or you're not, or you haven't, or you're a professor or you're just, you know, you're just a, a grinder, blue collar worker, there's a different perception that you have on different things and different backgrounds add a little bit more to the conversation. And with that being said, I wanted to bring on a, a very special guest. Uh, his name is Dr. Carter. He's a University of Mizzou grad. Uh, I, that's where he got his PhD from. Uh, he's also an associate professor at the University of Arizona in African Africana studies, I should say. Uh, he's wrote, written a book titled Digital Humanities, uh, Current Perspectives and Research. And he's worked with several universities on digital, including the University of Maryland, Alabama A&M, the University of Sweden, and the University of Paris. I mean, this is a well-rounded individual. Dr. Carter in the house. How you doing, sir? I'm fine. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you very much. I try to hype up everybody as much as I possibly can. How'd I do? (laughs) You did great. Thank you so much. Maybe a little bit of overkill, but thanks so much anyway. (laughs) No such thing as overkill. You'd rather be overhyped than underhyped. Here we go. (laughs) I guess so. (laughs) So, uh, you know, Dr. Carter, uh, I took one of your classes when I was at the University of Arizona, and uh, one of the things that always stood out was just how 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 clearly spoken you were about certain um, topics, whatever they may be. And the class that I took was a, a it was an African American literature course. Um, as you reflect on the last month and the the activities that have transpired, w- what is your ultimate takeaway um, on on just you know your whole perspective on the last month? I'll just say. Well, I, I guess my ultimate takeaway, I have a few takeaways. Uh, one of them is, of course, uh, just being just saddened, uh, I guess, by all of the events and, and knowing that 
that at any moment, uh, those very same things can happen to me or, or any of my friends that look like me uh, as we're driving or as we're walking or, or, or going down the street or going anywhere about our daily activities. Uh, so that sadness has overwhelmed me in many respects. But, but as I see the protests and as I see the, uh, the individuals participating in that, um, I'm always an optimistic person and I, I'm filled with a bit of optimism knowing that this is a, uh, a multiracial, multi-generational, multi-ethnic, multi-just uh, 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 sort of a religious uh, uh, movement that I think uh, is maybe have some traction this time. And hopefully uh, it's garnering enough attention uh, to really uh, move people to action as opposed to uh, uh, being excited about something for a few days and then, and then letting it die off just as may have happened in the past. It feels different, right? It does feel a little bit different, yes, and so hopefully that will lead to some really systemic changes, especially with, uh, with organizations uh, doing maybe a bit more than just making statements, which uh, you know is, is fine and good. But if people can make changes based on those statements, that's really what, what I think is going to going to count. Why, why do you think this time around has been so different versus you know a couple of years ago? Even starting, I, I would I know it wasn't the launching point, but Colin Kaepernick was you know obviously taking a knee for this very issue police brutality and systemic uh, you know prejudices why is this so much different well, I, I think there's not just one reason for that. I think there are a, a number of factors. I think one of them is, of course, um, just how blatant uh, the uh, you know the offense was, and and how finally uh, things that have been present in the black community, the black and brown communities for so very long, uh, that we know have been going on, are are right there in the in the in the face of the public, um, and 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 having to deal with that, I think, is is really bringing folks to a bit of a reckoning uh, with regards to whether they're going to whether they're going to stay silent and uh, and just continue to let these things happen and pretend to turn a blind eye or if you're going to get out and do something or, or make some changes or or as I've mentioned to some of my students that wonder what they do if they're not black and if they're not into protesting um, you know talk to your friends or or just do something just don't sit there and let these things uh, uh, you know keep on going uh, Richard Wright uh, in in one of his his uh, amazing uh, books um, uh, you know first time he wrote about uh, the, the effects of racism and the violence that may ensue as a result of that. Um, uh, it, it was a fantastic success, but what he found was that uh, he said that uh, he, even if uh, uh, banker's daughters read and weeped over this book, uh, that's just not enough. And that the next book that he would write uh, would move people to action. And that was Native Son. So when you think about you know what, what this is doing, this is our Native Son moment in many respects. And that I'm hoping that people will be moved to some sort of action. Dr. Carter, I was watching Netflix uh, not too long ago, and I was watching, I believe it's called LA 1992, when it went into the reaction from Rodney King. And it seemed like everything is very similar in 2020 to 1992. I'm just curious, from your perspective, how have the conversations evolved over time, if it has? 
Well, um, in, in the black community, the conversation has just basically been the same. I mean, it's it's gotten more vociferous, but it's it's been the same. This is happening. This is happening, and and, and pointing out countless examples of that. Um, I think that, or at least I hope that, in other communities, uh, people are really starting to finally wake up and see, look, uh, and and maybe listen to those of us in in these black and brown communities uh, that that these events are happening. And because I think of the uh, the presence of social media, because we can see these things happen over and over and over again. They're right in our face. It's not just one person that's uh, that's recording this on, on, on a cell phone. It's multiple uh, individuals. And so when you have all of that that footage, uh, you know, just basically right in your face, you, you know, something's got to change. And I think that's part of the reason why. Also, when you, when you think about um, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the incidences that occurred uh, afterwards, I think that has a lot to do also maybe with mobilizing this social movement in a way that is, is perhaps a bit different than 1992, whereby instead of a whole community going up in flames and people being maybe more afraid than, uh, than, than, than willing to participate you have the you know this this sort of multi-ethnic group individuals that are angry but not necessarily you know the the uh, the, the, the wanton violence that we saw happening in 92 uh, and and this is just a bit different I think you know we, we, you mentioned it earlier about change you know I, and a lot of people talk about change I, even going all the way back to the to the very the first recorded incident via social media you know like everybody was like oh you know they stomped the ground for change but ultimately nothing would ever happen this time mm-hmm. seems like it's going to be different but again it's about walking the walk not just talking the talk how can people get out there and make an actual difference and establish some type of change yeah i think uh i, I think part of that is 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 depending on what community you're in i know that one of the first things that all of us can do is is get out there to the polls vote uh let your voice be heard in that manner uh, secondly, uh, contact you know the Congress people and the and the, and the individuals that are in uh, our elected officials uh, because they're the ones, of course, that uh, can help make that change legislatively. Um, as far as some of the other systemic issues of racism, those are things that are going to take a little bit longer, I think, to root out. Uh, and it's not necessarily black people that are going to have to you know that are should be charged to fix this problem because it, it's not a black problem if you think about it. This is this is a white problem because this this systemic. A- aspects of racism were not built by black people. So, it, you know, it's, it's, it's um, unfair, I guess, for, uh, for the onus of how to fix that problem is on the shoulders of black people. So, so I think that now some people are starting to realize that, uh, that, that, you know, that although people that are black and brown can speak out about these issues, uh, that it really does take uh, systemic change from, uh, from those that are in positions of power and, 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 and then the actions to follow that up, uh, whether it be policy changes or whether it be scholarships that are created or, or whatever the action is, it, it's, it's going to take more than just a statement, I think. And I think some organizations and individuals are starting to realize that. So what has 2020 done for you as a professor? Has it changed the way you're going to ha- issue out information as a professor? 
Well, I think it's going to help reinforce uh, some of the things that, that we talk about in the class because, um, uh, you know, I always talk about the ways that that racism is 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 a systemic part of, of the building of, of America. And some students may not necessarily realize how in, in, ingrained uh, you know, that that practice is in, in all of our systems in so many respects. You know, we see that aspect in, in African-American literature over and over and over again through through the eyes of so many different writers and scholars um, and 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 to make that direct connection between things that happened in our past our collective past um, and 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 things that are happening now I think some students are, are really going to begin to fill in the blanks and, and connect those dots it'll be I think a little bit different now that many of them are seeing these things every day and the fact that we are seeing them every day we're all home we're sheltering at home and i think that may also be part of the you know the reason why we're seeing so much change whereas before when things would happen you know people are busy thinking of their lives their jobs their school whatever is going on to distract us uh from from these things happening when we're stuck at home and we're watching the news or any other media outlets and we're seeing you know this information whether it's a video clip or a protest uh this is all inundating us and, and so so that's good, definitely going to help us as far as my teaching being able to refer to those things is going to help but also knowing that some of the students in my class have participated in some of these marches i had one just in my in my summer one class uh, that's just wrapping up now that uh participated in one of the marches in seattle and was pushed by a police officer and broke her ankle she emails me a couple of days later and says dr c i can't make the live session today i broke my ankle and, and i asked her what why and she told me what she was doing and i was like you know what um in in my head i'm like you know what i'm, I'm so glad you had that experience not to not that you broke your ankle but that you're finally able to get out there and do something and see uh the frustration the anger the you know in, in some cases the hope that some people have with regards to the participation uh in enforcing or or uh, uh you know forcing folks to make some some systemic changes so those examples are really what are going to help my teaching i think and hopefully uh students won't be uh, uh nervous or or uh, fragile about about getting that information because it's all true. I mean, you know, you, you just touched on systemic changes. One good documentary out there is the 13th. If you get a chance to watch it on Netflix, mm -hmm. it lays it out from the time slavery ended through the Jim Crow laws, to the civil rights movement, and how those systemic changes were really uh, introduced to society and really targeted towards people of color. Uh, you know, it, they had a, a staggering statistic on there that said one in every 17 white males um, will go to prison one in every three black males will go to prison. And that wow. just floored me. Um, and yeah. how black males represent 48% of the prison system, which is just, it just blows my mind because we only represent 13% of the population as black people, period. So, you know, those kind of systemic changes, you know, like you said, that took what, 265 years just to get to this point. Um, there's a long way to go, you know, or 165 years. My math has never been my strong suit. Um, but, you know, <laughs> but we, when we talk about systemic change, um, I'm sure there's literature out there that, you know, I, I know everybody's into the Netflix and stuff like that, but there's always good literature out there and literature that's been around for quite a while. Um, can you name, uh, you know, three or four different uh, pieces of literature that people can get their hands on and kind of school themselves up on on what this is all about? 
Sure. I think, uh, you know, starting from some of the very early literature, you can look at uh, some of the work of W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, you know, one of those early, uh, you know, sociologists, historians. Uh, Soul of the Black uh, Man. Uh, yeah. Exactly. So as a black folk, uh, that, that one is definitely on, uh, should be top on the list. Uh, there are also some, uh, some more recent ones, uh, uh, you know, to understand the, 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 uh, how, how the criminal justice system plays into all of this, I think is really important for students to realize that it's not just the criminal justice system, but how that feeds into uh, uh, voting and how it feeds into uh, housing and banking and, and, and health care and all these, they're, they're all interconnected. So if you look at the, uh, the book, The New Jim Crow, uh, that, uh, that's an excellent one to, uh, to give an, un, you know, sort of underscore, you know, how, how the criminal justice system is a, you know, sort of a direct evolution, at least the way it is now, a direct evolution of, of slave catchers, of, of the early chain gang, of, you know, and it just moves, goes on and on and on with regards to how, how, how groups of individuals have sort of evolved into, into what we now know as the criminal justice system, which is uh, something that, you know, some students are studying criminal justice, but not necessarily understanding how it, how it really uh, formed. Uh, racism without racists is a, is a very, very good one. Uh, you know, when you look at, you know, how this, the notion of, of colorblind racism and uh, the perspective of, of, of racial inequality in America is really something that not many people understand the, uh, the roots or the basis of it uh, enough to really talk about it very much. Um, there's, uh, there's work by, uh, by James Weldon Johnson, who also uh, you know, is, is one of the you know standard bearers from from the 1920s or so. Um, but he did a lot of very interesting work on on uh, looking at the uh, the extent of racism and how it uh, how it pervades aspects of our society. Um, and then, of course, uh, uh, when you when you think about some uh, some contemporary works, uh, you can definitely look at James Baldwin's work. Uh, he's one of the few writers that that really tried to understand uh, why the behaviors of whites were in such a way that that so much anger uh, would would come out in those behaviors, and he tried to understand the roots of that. Uh, you know, we read the uh, uh, going to meet the man in our class, and, and how how racism was taught at such a young age that it became normalized to the point where uh, when when something happens, it, it it just didn't seem right if it were any other way but the way that someone was brought up to believe certain individuals should be treated. So those are just a few, and I can I can give you a whole reading list of other books that I think would be uh, good for your reading audience to really just look at how how racism affects everything from uh, in every walk of life, even in sports. For sure. And, and we'll put those books on, in the show notes for those of you yep. that are listening. So just go right back to our podcast show and you'll see the, those links below. I'll, I will add those today for sure. Um, but right. real quick, um, before we move on to sports to a degree, mm -hmm. uh, digital. <laughs> Okay, you're, you're, I'm going to say you're the master of digital, for lack of a better word, but um, that is, you hang your hat on, on your digital, um, you know, stance and, and the way you use it, not only for your classes, but personally as well. Um, how much of an influence and, and, and responsibility, I will say this, a responsibility do people have to post things on social media that are not only accurate, but representative of what this what is really going on because right now there is just so much getting thrown out on twitter and instagram and facebook and there are times where you're like did i get the whole picture is this the whole story like what happened before this what happened after this what's the responsibility of people that people should have when when you know introducing digital to social media 
Yeah, that's a, that's a huge question and sometimes even a double-edged sword. You know, when you think about the power of digital technologies, uh, you know, you can look at it as being this, this sort of great thing where, you know, if you've got everybody filming things, you know, we, we, we can never have, you know, officers or, or anything been the truth at all because we've got 15 cell phone videos of, of that event happening a different way. Uh, and we've seen examples of that. Um, you know, the downside of that is, is that when you start to put videos or, or recordings out there, you know, it's 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 in a sense uh, feeding off of black pain, and uh, you know I, I hate that exploitation in some respects because when you see that over and over and over again, even if it's you know uh, the pain of, of someone who has just lost someone, it's almost like a a, a, a a porn or an addiction thing in some respects, whereby some some folks feed off of that and they they want to just consume more and more of it, um, and that's that's a that's a you know taking away from uh, the the whole cause with regards to how it's, de it's desensitizing people isn't it it's desensitizing to a degree isn't it sure is definitely so when you think about the responsibility i mean yeah we've got a responsibility to you know make sure that the truth is out there and, the, and and as much as possible but you know when you think about passing these things on and on and i know there's power in social media but i think we should definitely be careful with regards to what we pass on and and who we pass it on to and and how these these clips are used for, for good as opposed to for this sort of glorification of, of, of black pain. Uh, but I think it is definitely useful and has definitely helped evolve the conversation uh, because now so much of that information is out for people to see that either turned a blind eye in the past or just didn't believe it was happening to the extent that it currently is. One common thing that I see are petitions being posted on Instagram stories or even on Twitter Maybe saw you can also answer this too. Which one is the right one? Because I feel like anytime I click on a petition, it's like, oh, it's almost there. You need to cast your vote right now. It always seems like it's at the same number. So for those that are wondering, you know, how can they make a change and sign these petitions? Which ones are the right ones? Well, uh, Justin, I'm glad you asked that because when you think about, you know, online petitions and statements that you know, we see stars making on Instagram or, you know, confessions, whatever the case might be, that's all well and good. But I think the most important thing that people can do is to, you know, follow the advice of some of those that are, that are in the trenches, volunteer, donate funds for, you know, to, to help folks that are arrested to get bailed out, donate to, uh, to, uh, to, to groups that are, that are supporting this cause, um, and make sure that you educate yourself. And that's, you know, one of the things I've been, you know, harping on my students is, is to make sure that they educate themselves on the truth about American history. It's, it's typically only taught through the eyes of the victor, so to speak. And so often, uh, when students come to a class, they, they only have a portion of the truth of whatever era we happen to be studying. So education is the key to really understanding that which not only was not taught in previous education experiences, typically high school, um, and we're talking about a demographic that may or may not have gone past high school, there is where you have to understand that that demographic is probably less informed about that which is you know, the root cause of any problem, but yet are more vociferous with regards to their, their staunchly believing that little portion of the truth that they want to hold deep and, and hold on dear to. So that's, that's something that we really have to grapple with. So education, and making sure that if you're if you're not a person of color 
talk to your peers because that's really where a lot of that change takes place. It doesn't necessarily take place in the classroom. It doesn't take place, you know, with regards to a petition that someone signs. It takes place with, you know, with smaller groups, individuals, or those that have maybe influence of those that are in positions of power. You know, one of the cool things about what has happened at this particular time in our in our country is the fact that it just happens to coincide with a COVID, uh, a global pandemic, right? And so, because of that, sports have been squashed, no sports, and it's almost brought more focus onto the issue at hand. In the NBA, I know some players have reservations about going back to play because they're afraid to take away from the noise that has been created. Um, Dr. Harry Edwards at the at, at Cal Berkeley, um, you know, he had a, a he was a he was a big time activist, a civil activist, and he he worked with John Carlos and Tommy Smith in the Olympics back in 1968 in Mexico City, um, and you know, and helped them get through that moment. Right, um, he was worked with the 49ers. You um, have have some relationships with the athletic department at the University of Arizona and some of the athletes. And I know um, there's been a couple athletes from the U of A that have spoken out about these kind of issues. What do you say to anybody, um, you know, any 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 black athlete or any athlete period who wants to make a difference, but understands the the scope that they're in and the bubble that they're in in athletics and how difficult that might be to navigate? Oh, yeah, it's very difficult to navigate, getting less difficult, I think, now than it was even just a year ago. When you think about how uh, whatever protests happened, you know, in the past, um, I think college athletes particularly have had to really walk a fine line because you can imagine that if unless you have a support of coaching staff, then anything you may say uh, may either wind you up on the bench or, you know, maybe uh, uh, lessen your chances of, of, of being successful on that team because the coaching staff doesn't support. Um, I think also that uh, the work that I've been doing with, with some athletes is, is important because uh, I, I like to stress to, to make sure that they are well-informed about whatever the topics happen to be dealing with uh, race or, or the, the topic of the day, so to speak, because they're going to be interviewed and they don't want to you know, be sound you know, ill-informed when a, a reporter is talking to them about whatever the topic happens to be. And, and we've unfortunately seen examples of, of athletes Athletes that just may not necessarily be the most informed about a, a particular topic. Uh, so I, I definitely stress making sure that they are informed, making sure that it's it, whatever their their thinking is 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 based on fact and not just opinion, um, and that they 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 really seek out other. Um, avenues on a campus that will broaden their their perspective of, of, of not only about what campus life is like, but also what the other side is like. And, and when I say the other side, I mean, often athletes are so hyper-scheduled that they rarely get a chance to participate in, in campus activities, particularly campus cultural activities. So you have, you know, a lot of black and brown athletes that, that, you know, know very little about what the black and brown students on campus are doing. So encouraging them to, you know, come on to the main part of campus and go to a cultural center event, uh, go to some of the meetings that the cultural centers are having and find out what, what the issues related to black students on campus are so that you can then become a part of that conversation. I always stress to athletes that they're going to have a, a different kind of platform than traditional students. Uh, even if they're not a star player, they're going to still be looked at a little bit differently, whether it's at a frat party 
are often treated differently or whether it's uh you know by by a reporter that's doing an interview that reporter may not necessarily interview someone that's just a uh, a regular student on campus so to speak so so athletes have a platform and they begin to build that platform i think at the college level it's important to understand how important that branding is so that when they they graduate to you know a, a higher level of athletics uh that they're that the brand is in impact and they can they can go they can take that brand with them with regards to their being uh, very uh, well spoken they're being very clearly educated on the topic and 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 ones that are not going to um, you know sort of purport that the world is flat or something like that <laughs> shout out to Kyrie Irving. There you go, Kyrie. Kind of shot there, Kyrie Irving. there it is. <laughs> I know I get that. Dr. Carter, this I have a two a two part question here. Um, one, you know, during this time, how many athletes at the University of Arizona have reached out to you about possibly using their platform or how can they create a dialogue to find solutions? And two, and since your time being at the U of A or any other colleges, which athletes have inspired you the most? Yeah, um, well, none that reached out to me personally about that. Although I do have very good relationships with athletes that have taken my classes or that most recently went to Paris with me that are still in touch uh, regarding their experience there and, and, you know, coming back to campus and getting back into sports and, and campus life. Um, so I think that, you know, th those athletes that are a part of that community have, have definitely stayed in touch. There's a group on, uh, uh, within athletics I uh, call them um, uh, uh, Men and Women of Purpose. And uh, um, uh, that, that program run out of uh, Becky Bell's office and, and the, uh, the diversity office athletics is amazing. And, and I think that core group of athletes uh, uh, both men and women uh, from a variety of sports have a, a, a very keen understanding of not only the issues uh, related to race and 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 and, and uh, racism in the United States, but also the issues specifically related to athletes of color here at the U of A on a predominantly white campus, which is a totally different experience than, of course, you can imagine on a, an HBCU or something like that. So I think that through those mediums, I've been able to stay in touch with a number of athletes, and it's it's been really fulfilling. Uh, the football players that, that went with me to, uh, to Paris most recently um, have been very inspirational to me because not only did I get a chance to learn a little bit more about some of their unique challenges, uh, but I've also really uh, helped, uh, I hope, encourage them to, to really think more seriously about uh, uh, an actual major as opposed to being undeclared or undecided um, and really thinking about double major because whatever career they're happy to go into, they've got to know some history about our own people, about uh, people of color, which oftentimes, once again, it's just not taught at the high school level. So so encouraging that, I think, has really been inspirational to me. And, and knowing that they're interested in that has been has been uh, in, inspirational on a number of fronts. Dr. Carter, you bring up HBCUs, and um, I think it was a couple weeks ago, Mikey Williams, uh, who's this five-star point guard, expected to be one of the top high school prospects, he said, you know, going to HBCU wouldn't be so bad. What do you think about the possibility and what do you think would be the effects for high profile athletes to go to HBCUs? Well, I think, uh, well, depending on where they came from, I think an HBCU experience is amazing. I wish I had had one when I was going through college because I think it would have shaped my uh, my self-esteem and, and and all the things related to uh, to where I fit in, in, in African-American life and culture a little bit differently. Um, Zora Neale Hurston wrote uh, some, some years ago that, uh, you know, she was born and, and raised in Eatonville, in Eatonville, Florida, an all-black township, and it was a totally different experience coming up 
up with uh, people in positions of power that look like her as opposed to the other way around. And so she had a different sense of who she was. Um, and I think that some black athletes that have not had that in the past would do, you know, it, it, that experience would do great for them. Um, I do think that uh, that an HBCU experience is something that, uh, that uh, you know, I think uh, a lot of people should have, whether they're black or white, uh, because I think it's just a whole different environment on, a, on, on one of those campuses than at a, at a, at a predominantly white campus. You know, I, I, I go personally to this because, you know, Estella, as you know, is my fiance. She's Hispanic. Um, and being around her family, who, I mean, a majority of them are doctors and lawyers. That was the first time I had ever been around a minority family with such high levels of education. Um, and honestly, Dr. Carter, when I got to the U of A, you were, you were maybe one of maybe five black men that I know um, that have reached a high degree of education, um, and I would say is successful, obviously. And you represent something that just a lot of people don't get a chance to see on a regular basis. And I think that's very important, especially now. Um, I tell that to my kids all the time. And uh, I, I think the influence that we all have in not only sharing our story, but also um, being an example of what people can achieve of color um, is so important. And you're, you know, to your HBCU comment, I mean, I, same thing with me, you know, I, I didn't go to an HBCU. I went to the U of A as an older, you know, a, a non, uh, a, a, uh, what do you call it? A, a non, uh, millennial think of the word. No, just a, a non-standard student or whatever, you know, I'm, I'm different because I'm old. <laughs> yeah. Non-traditional. There you go. Um, and so, you know, the experience for me was a little bit different, but still, you know, you feel it. You do feel it when you're walking around campus. You're like, wow, there's a lot of white people here. You know what I mean? And, and you know, you don't get to see colored people a lot or, or black people or Mexicans or anything like that very often until you go to those cultural centers that you were talking about or very specific areas of campus where you know they're going to be. And so it's 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 a unique experience, not something that I would ever change. But to have that secondary experience of being in an HBCU would have been uh, tremendous, but I digress. Yeah. That was my personal, you know, you know dissertation. But Love it. Dr. Carter, we I, I, I we, we appreciate. <laughs> Say that again. <laughs> No, I, I was just saying, say, I couldn't agree with you more about the power of role models. And I think that, you know, in fact, today, the fact that you said this, uh, today I just found out that um, I didn't know that there were only 57 uh, 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 faculty members of color, African-American faculty members of color on tenure track, and only 17 of those 57 on tenure track at U of A. So when I think about just the sheer numbers of, uh, of role models that, that students of color don't see, uh, you can imagine that, yes, the occasional black faculty Remember, you know, in a classroom is great, but when you look at our administration and upper administration and and you know department heads and all those kinds of things, that goes a long way when students can you know see someone that looks like them in in those positions, uh, you know, whether it be just for inspiration or for direct mentorship. That is so powerful for uh, for recruitment and retention. And it's unfortunate that uh, that so many uh, uh, institutions that are that are that are PWIs, uh, uh, prominently white institutions. Uh, don't see that connection between having a representative number of faculty of color um, and how it directly relates to recruitment of students of color, retention of students of color, as well as uh, alumni having positive experiences uh, that they relate to and then donating back to the university. So many students, unfortunately, that are of color have such bad experiences at a predominantly white institution that they're just hoping to get out or trying to get out and they never want to look back. 
imagine what that does to uh, to alumni relations. So, so just adding that little emphasis uh, to increase representation would go such a long way. But unfortunately, some don't see that connection and, and won't put the resources into those kinds of hiring, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, again, you, you mentioned earlier, this is all a very long process. Um, there's no easy, there's no, nobody's going to be able to snap a finger and change everything systemically, but um, we just got to do our part day by day and get through it. And, you know, we're not really working for our generation. We're working for the next one and the next one after that and the next one after that. So uh, Dr. Carter, we appreciate your time so much today. Um, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. And I can look forward to talking with you all again and, uh, and keep doing a good job. I've listened to a couple of your episodes. It's, it's a fantastic show. So good luck with everything. I appreciate it. That's Dr. Dr. Carter, Carter joining yeah, us today so on the Total BS Podcast. Thank you, sir. All right. Dr. Carter joining us on the Total BS Podcast. Justin, man, that was, man, that was pretty deep there, huh? That was awesome. That was, I dude, loved that, it. that was my favorite episode so far. You know, I, we brought him on because we wanted him to have an opportunity to speak because, you know, obviously he's very articulate. He knows exactly what he's talking about and he's able to get your mind onto millions of different things, but in a way where you're focused at one point along the way, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so I love his voice too. He's got a snoky, smooth voice. He does. Hey, you know, there's a there's a little like little Barry White in there, but there's also a you know, it's just very smooth. He's like, there's a little bit of like, if you close your eyes, I would think like there's a little Uncle Phil mixed with a little Barry White. You know what I mean? Like, just very like, you know, it's, it's very good. It's very good. So, Doctor Carter, the best man. All right. Um. So there's a little bit to get to. We'll try to wrap it up as fast as we can. But sports are coming back, apparently, Justin. Hey, it's like Christmas <laughs> in June. And just like Major League Baseball, you had to delay as well. <laughs> <laughs> 60 games, Saul. Six, hey, you know what? We'll take it at this point. Who cares? You know, I know we were supposed to have maybe 100, maybe 82, maybe 70, maybe 75, 65. We, we got 60. That's how it's going to be. 60 games in 66 days. July 1st, everybody reports. The first game starts July 24th your overall impressions on an agreement finally between MLBPA and MLB. It's about damn time. It's about damn time that both sides finally came to an agreement and said, listen, we need to play baseball because I think the sport really would have taken a hit economically if they didn't play baseball. So they had to figure out a way, listen, we need to get on the field ASAP and they did it. So now they're going to start July 24th. I love the fact that they're going to have a, uh, full-time DH. So the National League is going to have a designated hitter. I know uh, for you know certain fans of the National League, guys like Diamondback fans, they were excited to see Madison Bumgarner because he can actually, you know, actually hit. He can swing. He can yeah. swing. But you know, you're going to have a DH, and I think this is going to make the game exciting. And I think this could also be an experiment, not the the length of the season, but I think the way everything is set up during the season, I think it's going to be an experiment for possibly what's to come for Major League Baseball, which is we all know is in need of some change to really you know give the sport a little boost of energy. But uh, I'm excited. 60 games. I know the Dodgers and the Yankees um, have opened up as the title favorites. So we'll see. One thing I'm interested to, to watch is are we going to see you know these – super crazy records are we going to because in 2017 the dodgers went like 40 uh, 43 and 7 
uh, over the course of 50 games. The Indians went 42 and eight. So are we going to see, you know, these crazy records and are we going to see a batter over with a batting average of over 400? Only one player has done that in the first 60 games of the season and that uh, since 2008, and I believe that is Chipper Jones. So will we see that? I don't know, but I'm excited. Yeah, you know, it's going to be interesting. You know, 60 games, you you manage your team differently for 60 games than you do 162. There's no more of this. I mean, think about it. If you if you take the – if you divide it, right, is 60 games is roughly one-third of what a normal MLB season would have been, right? It, it, it's 180, you know, times three, but, you know – uh, for 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 this purpose, I'm going to say it's about a third of the season. It's roughly a third. Oh, um, sorry. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, it's roughly one third of the season. So you're 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 trying to manage one third of the season and get the most. It's a sprint. So every game essentially is now a three game series. It's yeah. worth it's worth a three game series. So absolutely there is no pacing yourselves to try and get into the motion of the season. You know, like some teams like to do that, especially the experienced good teams. They like to come into the season. They just kind of, they kind of coast through the, the early parts of the year and then boom. Well, I feel the Dodgers are notorious for doing that because I feel like the teams like the Diamondbacks or the Padres or the Rockies, they have a fast start in the NL West and there's the Dodgers just kind of coasting by. And then by all-star break, they're already number one in the National League West, and they just create separation the rest of the way as they close through the season. Now it puts some pressure on every single team. If we played 60 games last year, the Nationals wouldn't even make the playoffs, and they won no title. You know what I mean? Like it's a different way. You got to go about your pitching lineups, who you're putting in the lineup every single day. You're probably not sitting your superstars as much as, you know, sometimes they give them like a day off every two weeks or something like that. You're probably not doing that now because you only got like eight weeks to play. Like you got to go. It's all out from beginning to end, which I think is going to make the games uh, a little bit more entertaining. It's going to, it's going to be better. It's a better product on the field. Um, the only thing I'm not going to be a fan of is the fact that we got to watch so much of this. I it's, it's, it's going to seem silly. I understand why they're doing it, but no spitting, no tobacco, no, no seeds, no high fives, no slapping, no, like nothing. And if a manager comes out to argue with the umpire, he's subject to suspension. Which is crazy, you know. What I mean, like, I, that's that could happen, you know. What I mean, so it's it's going to be very uh, interesting to see how that develops. Uh, the PGA Tour today uh, announced that they're still going to continue on with the with the Travelers Championship, but they've had a couple COVID uh, cases, um, and so um, it, that's going to be interesting to see how they play out. But uh, Justin, I think at the end of the day, we all know there are going to be positive tests. People are going to get this virus, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. So at this point, I I am as socially distanced as I can be, and I practice social distance, and I wear my mask everywhere I go. I wash my hands. I do everything that I'm asked to do, right? Yeah. But that doesn't stop. It doesn't stop everything. If I go to the grocery store, that's a risk that you're having to take, right? Yeah. The, some of these players are going to get it, and um, you know, I think at, at the end of the day. They're just going to have to say, you know what, if I get it, I get it. If I don't, I don't. Uh, yeah. Or stay home, period. Like, And a lot of these players are coming from different parts of the country, heck, different parts of the world. You know, you saw with the NBA, 
uh, Nikola Jokic of the Denver Nuggets tested positive for COVID-19. And the only reason why he did that was because I'm going to call him an idiot here. He went to a party. Novak Djokovic. Novak Djokovic had a party and eight people from that party got COVID-19. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Him being one. No, get, that, Novak Djokovic it, being uh, one. And, and Nikola, yeah. yeah. But I mean, both of them party together, so then they get COVID-19. That's Darwinism at its finest. There is a global <laughs> pandemic going on, and you decide to have this party with no one wearing masks. And I think this is going to be a wake-up call for a lot of athletes in sports, especially the United States, that sports are coming back and they're returning. Do you want to be that guy that misses out on an opportunity to compete for a championship because you're quarantining yourself because you just can't stay away from the clubs. You just can't stay away from the social scene. So I think with a lot of NBA players testing positive, uh, I know the Philadelphia Phillies, they had some uh, players test positive for COVID-19. This is going to be a wake up call because sports are back. So all these organizations and franchises, they're going to get their players. They're going to go through the proper screening and you're going to see a lot of positive cases, but I think with them being grounded and playing sports, I think we're going to see fewer and fewer cases. Although I do have my fingers crossed because it seems like once we're about to get back to sports, uh, something happens and we're not. So we'll you see. Know, I, I think you can <clears throat> you can put in all the protocols you want. You can you can make all the plans you want. Even the NBA bubble isn't going to be impervious to to infection because. You can't control all the elements inside the bubble. You still have Disney World employees coming in and out of the bubble. When you have the outside element, you're at you're you're subjected to whatever is out there. You know, these players are going to go home at night. They're going to sleep at home. Their their wives, their family members might be out shopping at the grocery store or shopping at the mall or God knows where and they could come home with that virus and give it off to their their significant other and then that then they bring it to the clubhouse like these are the things that nobody can prepare for, and you're just going to have to deal with them on a case-by-case basis. I doubt we're going to see an instance where the whole team gets it at the same time. If we do, then I could imagine baseball being shut down. But outside of that, I think we'll be able to carry through the season unless, and heaven forbid this happens, somebody dies. I yeah. think if somebody passes away from this virus – then all bets are off and everything comes to a screeching halt. But um, it's either that it's, it's either we keep playing or we wait to a, un, until a vaccine is created. And that's, that could be at the end of this year or the beginning of next year, according to Dr. Fauci. So hopefully that does happen. But um, for, for right now, Justin, we're going to thrive in optimism and move along as if sports are finally coming back and it couldn't be too soon. Thank the Lord for all this. <laughs> thank, thank goodness. You know the thought the the thought of baseball coming back, thought of basketball coming back in July. MLS is also coming back too. Like the month of July is going to be a sports heavy month, which is kind of weird. August is going to be a sports August because all these teams are coming back to training just in July. July. The TV waves start blaring in August, and that's going to be hell, Justin. Justin, look at my face. I, know. I am not excited about that. <laughs> not one bit. I got to do three games in one day. Are you out of your mind? Like what? Oh, my God. You gosh. signed up for this, my friend. You de- <laughs> you decided to leave us down here in Tucson. You decided to go work with the big boy market. So that's what you get for working with professional teams. But think about this, Saul. Usually we're, we're like, oh, I'm, I'm scratching my neck here. 
Ah, we need football. We're, we're just fiending for football, man. We're just itching to get football and watch it. But now we're going to have NBA, baseball, um, and we're going to get you know a little taste of football because, I mean, teams are going to go to training camp. And Hard Knocks is apparently going to be in Los Angeles with both teams. So there's just so many good things happening in the month of August. So we like to be positive here on the Total BS Podcast. We understand that there are a lot of red flags and a lot of loopholes that can make this whole thing crash and burn. But until that happens, we're going to put a smile on our face and we're just going to be happy that sports are back. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it any better. And with that, that's the end of another episode of the Total BS Podcast. Justin, tell them where they can find us. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And also be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube and Twitch because we have our Sunday Night Showdown. Is that what we're calling it? Is, Sunday, that, is that what we're calling it? Sunday, Sunday Night, night showdown? showdown. I don't Sunday know. Sunday Night Lights. I don't know what you. <laughs> I don't even know. We. I didn't even know we had a name. I don't know. We had a name either. But the Sunday, Sunday show stream. Our live stream. There we go. But our Sunday Night live stream is the best one because we go, you know, an hour. We have great guests. We always do our special segment called "Don't Be That Guy," and we just cover a number of topics. And watching us is always better than listening. So make sure you. Yes, because we have beautiful faces, Saul. <laughs> we have faces for podcasts. So make sure you subscribe to us on YouTube, Twitch, and also like us on Facebook and Twitter as well. And subscribe to the Total BS Podcast where you listen to podcasts. There you go. There you go. He said it best. That's the end of this show. We'll see you when we see you. Peace. Your fans just might turn into our fans. Be cool. It's just part of the program. Spit your best 16 if you must. You're not whack. You just sound whack rapping after us. Yo, your fans just might turn into our fans. Be cool. It's just a part of this program. Spit your best 16 if you must. You not whack. You just sound whack rapping after us.